You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Well, hey guys. Um, man, we recently got out of graduation season, if you were here. Maybe a few of you graduated. Any graduates in here? You graduated something? Anybody? You should be a little more proud, proud <laughs> about that. I hope so. Yeah, but we had a lot of families visiting for graduation, uh, May, June. And man, if you have been to a commencement ceremony, I can guarantee that you have probably heard something like this phrase, something like, go and change the world. Uh, our, our political campaigns, too, are, are dripping with this grandiose language about kind of changing the world uh, even if you just go the next, the last few presidential campaigns, if you go to Obama, his was on hope and change. If you go to Trump, um, what was his again? Anybody remember that one? <laughs> Some of you cringed a little bit. Biden's was building back better. This grand change language. Uh, advertisers do this too, right? If you get the new iPhone 14 in bronze, nothing else has changed, but if you get the bronze one, your world is going to be changed, right? That's coming up. There's a lot of promises for change in our world. There's a lot of people uh, inviting us to partake in that change. And we want to jump onto that because we have a couple desires that are kind of bedrock in us, I think, for most of us. One, we have this belief that the world is broken and needs to get better. And, and two, I think we have a belief or at least hope or, or wish that we could actually change it for the better and we could be a part of bettering and being a part of that change. And that's why I think we jump onto these grandiose campaigns and advertisers and invitations. And I don't know about you, I get a little inoculated maybe towards some of this change the world language. It gets a little, um, I can get a little jaded because it's out there so much, but that's exactly what we have here in Acts 17, an invitation, really the whole book of Acts, an invitation to be on the movement of God and change the world. Uh, Paul and Silas, they're on this second missionary uh, journey. They're going to cities proclaiming Jesus where he has never been proclaimed. And this is the result that we that just just read in verse 6. These men have turned the world upside down. They're changing the world. Uh, one professor, he wrote a book on Acts, and he actually called his book on Acts, Turning the World Upside Down, or The World Upside Down. And this is what he says uh, about Acts. He says, Acts narrates the formation of a new culture, a new culture. In every city we visited, in every city we will visit in Acts, you're going to see real culture change. You're going to see ethnic groups that have hated each other for generations all of a sudden come to Christ and call each other family. You're going to have people that are systemically poor and overlooked brought into this family and all of a sudden be serving and ministering and even leading in this new family. Even non-Christian historians like Josephus, or Josephus whew, say that five times fast, are going to write extensively about how Christians stood out from the world, changed the world, adopted unwanted kids, started hospitals and cared for each other in a way that had never been seen before. And if you've been with us in Acts, Paul's got this kind of similar pattern every time he goes to a city. It's going to be uh, really in like six steps I wrote down. Step one, go to a new city. Step two, preach the gospel. Step three, uh, some believe, some don't. Step four, opposition. Step five, get kicked out. Step six, repeat. Just do it all over again. And every one of those stories kind of follows this pattern that we're going to see in Acts. 
but each one also has some nuance and some difference. And namely in these two churches, these really brief um, visits to these two churches, we're going to see this one focus that Paul is going to give us, or that the Luke, the uh, author, is going to give us. That it's actually God's word, it's the Bible that turns this world, that turns our world upside down. And uh, man, I, someone gave me, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do with the challenge of, I'm only going to focus on like three verses. And so I'm going to see if I can, I'm shooting for like under 40 minutes. Uh, we'll see if we can do it in just a few verses. I know. Someone actually yelled at me when I said that uh, last service, you won't. You guys remember the you won't like phase? So I, have to, I had to do it last year, so I'm going to try to do it this one because uh, I miss those, the you won't days. So here, here are the two things we're going to see in, those, in these two accounts. In Thessalonica, we're going to see how we as God's people are to give God's word. And then in Berea, we're going to see how we as God's people are to receive God's word. So let's look at number one, uh, point one, how do we give God's word? So Paul, he's, he's beelining to Thessalonica. It's this huge, impactful, 200,000-person culture center. It's the second largest city in Greece. And he goes straight to the synagogue. And in this brief interview, or, uh, overview of this time in the city, it's going to answer this question, really these verbs, these beautiful verbs that we're going to see are going to show us how do we give God's word. Do we just open our Bible and the Holy Spirit just jumps out and snatches people? Not quite. We actually need to have some, some strategy, some thoughtfulness about it. And so I'm going to focus on four things from the verbs offered to us here and how Paul gives God's word. Uh, the first one is Christ-centered. So it says, as Paul went in, as was his custom, verse 2, he was explaining. He's explaining. So Paul wasn't just reading his Bible. It needed some explaining. It needed some unpacking. And that might be a little strange because these brothers he's going to talk to and sisters he's going to talk to, they know their Bibles. If you met them at Trivia Night at Home Slice this week and the topic was Bible, they would take you to town. They would own you. They knew their Bibles. So what in the world does Paul have to explain to these Bible-literate Jewish people? They knew all the stories of the Bible. They knew the names. They knew the trivia about who Moses' mother was, right? The, the questions we wouldn't really know how to answer. But all their facts of the Bible were, in a, in a sense, or stories were, in a sense, like these individual spindles on a bicycle wheel. Can you guys picture that with me? These little thin metal spindles on a bicycle wheel. All of their stories, all their facts, on, on their own, they can't really, don't serve a ton of purpose on their own. Uh, my kid could probably bend it. They don't really hold a lot of weight. They don't serve a lot of purpose. And knowing Bible facts, knowing a great story in the Bible uh, alone outside of the central context of, of, of the Bible is kind of like that. If you know the Ten Commandments, if you know Christian morality, if you knew the name of Moses' mom in the Old Testament, man, that's great, but it won't hold the weight of your eternal need. But what happens if you take one of these spindles? What happens if you align it around a hub? It becomes probably man's like greatest invention, right? A wheel. It, it aligns around this hub to create this wheel that can hold hundreds of pounds of weight. And that's exactly what happens when we take all the Bible stories, the whole Bible, and we align it on this central theme of Christ. It holds our weight, it holds our, knee and our need. And Paul explains what it is in verse 3. He says, It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead in saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So he's saying this central hub, this underlying story of the Bible is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he actually says it's necessary. 
So you think, why is it necessary for the Son of God, God himself, to come and suffer? Because of you and because of me. Because you and I were so deeply marked by rebellion, so deeply broken that he actually had to come, or he actually, the best stuff that we could give him, the best things we thought, or the righteous acts, the Bible says, that we could give him are actually filthy rags, or maybe a more contemporary example, dirty diapers, in comparison to God's holiness. But Jesus so deeply loved and so deeply desired to save us that he actually joyfully, willingly came to be trampled by the wrath of God in your place. That God that created the stars and the universe billions of light years wide came to be stripped, beaten, bloodied, murdered for our sin. And secondly, it was necessary that he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead because we needed something more powerful in our life than just a little tweak, a little improvement, a little self-esteem boost, a few life hacks that made our life more comfortable. Jesus rising from the dead actually means his death defeating power resides in his people when you follow him. It means your old heart that was cold towards God and cold towards people is now made new, being warm and following God. It means that no addiction or sin can actually own you because Jesus has set his sights and owned you with his purchasing you. It means that no matter how good this life can be, we still long and look forward to a better place where Jesus has opened up a chair and is saving a seat for us in heaven. So giving God's word, it's not about just imparting some random Bible knowledge. It's about giving them the central hub of the gospel and aligning the gospel, aligning the Bible in our whole lives around the central hub of the gospel. And I think we can often, guys, fall into a little bit of a trap when we're conversing with others about Christianity or the Bible. Uh, a lot of times, if, if you've had this experience, I'll talk to someone, hey, I'm a pastor, or we're talking about Christianity. Like, oh man, I, I'm not really down with Christianity. Um, I'm not about that Christian like sexual ethic or I'm not about that like literal Adam and Eve thing or I'm not about those miracles. I can never get behind that stuff. And I think the temptation for us is to come in and say, well, let me convince you of why Adam and Eve were literal people. Let me convince you why miracles in the Bible exist or let me convince you why uh, biblical sexuality is the right way to go. So those things are important, but if we just stay there and we don't orient those things, if we don't orient them to their main need, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we'll be actually leading them astray. We won't be leading them to their one hope in Jesus, the belief in uh, the Savior died for them and rose for them. So we give them a Bible, we give it with Christ as the central hub. Secondly, we do it intelligently. So Paul has this general pattern I mentioned earlier, but he's not this like robot on autopilot. He doesn't just come and like hand out a gospel track and be like, did you know that Jesus died for your sins? Did you know you have to um, uh, give your life to follow him? Did you know you'll be in heaven forever and then just leave? Like he is contextual. He's engaging. He's uh, thoughtful. Uh, he's strategic. He's relevant. Listen to, listen to this. A couple, couple of verbs I want to focus on. He says that he reasoned from the scriptures in verse 2. So this word reason is going to keep popping up through Acts from here on out. And what it means, uh, we actually get the word dialogue from the word that this reasoning word comes from. So it means a back and forth, a wrestling together. It's not a monologue that's boring. It's engaging dialogue. So what, what I'm doing here is actually not the norm for Christian evangelism. It's you in your life every day dialoguing, going back and forth with those in your life about the things of the gospel. 
And uh, man, I often, I think we think the norm is, and I often thought this too, the norm for Christian evangelism is some just really awkward monologue where someone, you can like trap someone for 20 minutes so they can listen to your spiel and then they're just trying to squirm away until you're done. I, that's what I thought evangelism was when I was a new Christian at uh, Virginia Tech. I had a guy who volunteered to walk me through just what it looks like to walk with Jesus, meet with me every week. And the first time we met, first day we met, he goes, all right, man, you ready to go? I'm like a few days old. I'm like a few weeks old Christian. All right, bro, you ready to go share the gospel on campus? Uh, was some, someone random? It's like, no, I am not ready. Because in my mind, I'm like, I, I don't have my track down. I don't have my 20-minute monologue and argument down. I am not ready for this. And he's like, all right, well, just, just come watch. And uh, we go, and man, I'm like, I'm just nervous, dude. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be so awkward. I'm just going to watch, and it's going to be awkward. And um, we sit down, dining hall, Virginia Tech, number one dining hall in the, in the country. Anyways, great food. We sit down in the dining hall, and we meet this bro, and I was amazed. We sat down with this guy, and it was a dialogue. It was back and forth. Have you considered this claim of Christ? What's your spiritual background in history? What do you think about sin and brokenness, the nature of man? What do you think about heaven and hell? And man, at the end of this conversation, it's probably like an hour long, this, um, this dude was like, man, this was the highlight of my week. And he didn't accept Christ that day, but we, but man, it was such an intentional conversation around spiritual things. And I was like, man, I can do that. That was awesome. It, 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 so many times we can enter into, we're invited to enter into a dialogue about spiritual things with those around us, not a awkward monologue. The other verb he uses is proving. Proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. So Paul's not just relatable, he's compelling. Proving literally means actually to, to place beside something. So let me just take a minute and explain what, what Paul's doing. So Paul's talking to Jews. They're longing for this Messiah that's going to come and save them. Uh, a commentator says that Paul is setting the fulfillment alongside the predictions. So Paul is taking these deep longings that these Jewish people have, and he's showing them in the, Old in the Old Testament, he's showing them Jesus Christ right beside those predictions. So he's saying, hey guys, look, you are, you're longing for the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. You're, you're longing for this king like David, the Davidic king, to come and reign forever, a man after God's own heart, just and righteous. Look at Jesus on the throne. You're longing for the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 to come and crush Satan and crush evil for once and for all. Look at Jesus Christ. It's him. He is coming to fulfill your deepest longings. And we do the same thing. We're called to do the same thing that Paul's doing here. As we uncover people's deepest longings, we place Jesus beside those longings as the fulfillment of them. Let me um, give you an example for me. Uh, before I was a Christian, I, I, was, I was addicted to approval. No matter how many times people said they liked me, no matter how many friends I had, no matter how many phone calls I got, it was never enough. I still didn't feel accepted. I didn't still feel approved of. And when, when I, heard the, I heard the gospel, the, the fact that Christ died for me and paid for my sins and I was gonna be in heaven was, was such good news. But you know what really captured my heart, what really fulfilled my longing was showing how Jesus' approval, the Father's approval was bought for me 
at Christ's expense, that Jesus Christ actually was spurned by God, took on the wrath of God, was separated from the Father so I could come in and have approval from God and standing in his people no matter what. That he was always gonna hold me fast no matter what. And man, that fulfilled my longing. My deepest longing was met in Jesus. And we can do that all the time with other people. For those that are longing for peace in this deep fog of anxiety and depression, we show them Jesus whose soul was tortured in anxiety so we could have his invincible peace. For those that long for this deep family that don't have it or have a really rough family background, we show them Jesus who actually was separated from his father so you could be brought into a family forever. For the one longing for purpose in a mundane life, we show you Jesus who actually invites you to come in and step in in his authority, giving you his presence to go in and change the world forever. And so we give God's words, God's word intelligibly. We ask good questions. We encourage the tough questions to us. We're not afraid of hard questions. We address their disagreements kindly, being faithful to the Bible. And most of all, we leave the results to God, knowing it is not our intelligence that saves people, but it's Jesus who wins people to himself. Couple ones I want to hit real quick. We give the word boldly. Um, there's a couple places where we see this. First, we see this verb proclaim. So proclaim, it's, it's declarative. You don't declare and proclaim your like slight preferences. You declare and proclaim what's true. But we also get to hear about um, how Paul came to these people because uh, this short uh, instance with Thessalonians, we get to hear a lot more about it because he wrote them a couple letters later. So I'm going to skip to 1 Thessalonians 2 a letter that he wrote to this church later, um, Paul did. And this is how he talks about coming to the Thessalonians. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God amidst much conflict. So even in opposition, it says, I was bold. Why? It says it's because it was rooted in God, not himself. And I think, friends, too many of us, when we think about boldness, we are looking here. We're looking at ourselves. Man, I don't know if I know all the answers. I don't know if I'm compelling enough. I don't know if I know um, enough Bible to share. I don't know if my life lines up enough with, is a good enough Christian life to be uh, a good enough testimony to be able to share Christ with somebody. We look at ourselves way too much, and Paul's saying, just look, look at God. It's his word, it's his power, it's his authority that gives us boldness. And man, in our, we, we live in an age that loves uh, subjective tolerance. We need a people that are bold, rooted in God to proclaim Christ. Uh, lastly, the word's given relationally. Uh, I want to point you to just a verse I love, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Again, he's writing later to this church in Thessalonica. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So I love this passage. The bold, proclaiming Paul gives his heart away, becomes vulnerable at, the, at his own expense. He's saying sharing Christ with others isn't proclaiming some message and then retreating to your row home it's investing yourself in the lives of others. It's mourning with them through a death in the family. It's inviting them into your home and, uh, God forbid, your fridge. It's giving them your care and your affection. And guys, this is how the world was turned upside down. 
giving God's word, centered on Christ, intelligently, boldly, relationally. Now, if you do this formula, is everyone just going to fall on their face and worship Jesus? What do you think? Not quite. Uh, here, there's a pretty mixed reaction. It says some, uh, some men start following Jesus, or some men and women start following Jesus, and actually a lot of Greek women, but others get jealous and start a riot. It says these men, verse 6 and 7, who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. The call to follow Jesus is the call to a new allegiance, a new king. To follow Jesus is actually to dethrone anything else, all other allegiances, and actually put Jesus as the controlling CEO of your life. And when you call people to follow Jesus, that's what you're inviting them to do. It means you dethrone your financial security. It means you dethrone your future dreams. It means you dethrone your desired geography, your sexuality, and your romance, your politics. Everything is put under the directive, the, uh, the control of King Jesus and guided by his word. And so when you call people to this, there's going to be mixed responses. Some turn to Jesus and are saved, and some might run you out of their life. But you're in good company. Paul and um, his crew, they have to sneak out by night because of all the opposition. They head 50 miles up the road to Berea, uh, where God's word is received a little differently. So um, we're going to focus on the next section on just how the word is received in this church in Berea, these new Christians in Berea. And I don't know if you, if you remember, man, the Bereans have fallen out of style a bit, but like in the 90s, when I was around the church in the 90s, it was like the Bereans were like the thing. Like, let's be like Berean Christians. Like, there were t-shirts. I remember Berean t-shirts. Anybody remember that? Or is it just me? Am I alone? I was, maybe I was at a wacky church growing up. I don't know. But I just remember all the time, there were clubs, there were groups meeting, like, let's be like the Bereans. I haven't heard one of those in a while. So anyways, I'm gonna try to bring them back into style. Maybe we'll get some Berean uh, church wear this fall. So we receive God's word like the Bereans. That's an invitation for us. Paul starts his same routine when he gets to this city. He goes to a synagogue, reasons from the scriptures, presents Jesus as the Messiah. But this time the response is a lot different. Listen to this. I'm going to focus the rest of our time just here on verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if they were so. So let me go through these, these, um, these verbs a little bit. It says they were noble. This means they received God's word openly. Basically, they're, they're open to having their opinions changed and challenged. They didn't do what so often happens to us, I think, which is to come to God's word with some firm beliefs and try to proof text it. Man, I really believe this, and let me figure out where this is true in the Bible, where I can prove this in the Bible. Not coming open just to seeing what, whatever God's word says. And this has been done throughout history. Probably the, one of the most egregious ones is when slaveholders in America would actually use this to justify brutal slavery. Taking verses out of context, justifying something that wasn't in God's heart or in his word. And this temptation actually, though, resides in every one of us Every time we open up God's word, we come with underlying desires, the things we want to be true. Each of us holds a lot of objective truth claims in here and in here. Uh, this cause is unjust. This leader is evil and corrupt. 
Um, the biggest truth claim that's really getting fought over in my house right now is um, Christmas music under no circumstance should ever be played before Thanksgiving. Um, there's a lot of conflict in my house. Pray for us over this, this fight, this battle. It's in here, though. I'm going to find it. It's in there. Each of these truth claims come from a, some foundation of truth, some, some standard you're comparing it to to draw a truth claim out. And, and when it comes to spiritual claims, people generally get their foundation of truth from a few different places. Uh, one, although I think this one's going out of style a little bit, is, is tradition. I grew up this way. I've always heard it taught this way. Therefore, this is true. Uh, another is, is rationale. Right? Through the experts, through logic, through science, this, this is what makes sense to, to me. Uh, another, a third is emotion. This is what feels right. This is what feels true. This is what feels good. So this is truth. This is right. And none of these things is a bad thing. Tradition can be great. Rationale, obviously great. Emotions even are great. But they're not reliable foundations of truth. There's only one reliable foundation of truth that we can actually rely on as God's people, but really in the world today, and it's this, it's revelation. We are a people that cling to one foundation of truth, that God has spoken something outside of us, something incorruptible, because tradition and rationale and emotions, as good as they are, are all corruptible. They're not fully reliable. They can crumble but we look at God's word and we say, God has come outside of us and spoken to his people to give us a firm foundation to base our lives after. And so let's bring an example is one that makes God's word, his revelation, their foundation of truth, no matter what, no matter what the consequences. All the other foundations are inconsistent. They're gonna crumble and at worst are not in line with that what's actually true. And so their example, guys, is an invitation for us to come to God's word and just open humble hearts and just say, God, would you teach me? I'm coming with all my own stuff. I'm coming with all my own preferences, all my own desires. But God, I trust you. I trust your word. And, and would you just teach me humbly? Would you change me? Would you convict me? I mean, we need this heart, guys, because I'll be honest, you, you can go find someone teaching, an expert or someone with the title Christian to, to affirm almost anything you want to hear now. You could go find a teaching to affirm most things that you want to believe. But really what we want to do is we want to say, what does God's word really say? And so for you, do you ever find yourself corrected by God's word? Ever changed by God's word? Ever challenged by God's word? If not, you might be relying a little too much on another foundation of truth in your life. They come hungry. They receive God's word hungry. It says in verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness. Many these Berean Christians, they were hungry for God's word. They were not satisfied with any sustenance less than maybe the filet mignon of God's word. Or if you're a vegetarian, um, the cauliflower steak of God's word. Is that a fitting example, vegetarians? Come to me after there's a better one. You like the, the coup d'etat of the vegetarian um, meal there. Too many churches, though, we are, we are producing, too many churches are producing flabby, unhealthy, unstable Christians because their main diet is cotton candy. 
Something that is served up as sweet but has no real sustenance. Just giving TED Talks, um, a great production, the fog, the deep bass, a funny story, and a really meager serving of God's word. I've visited some of these churches with friends over the years. Uh, A place where you feel awkward walking in holding a Bible. A place where you don't hear one verse quoted throughout the whole Sunday. A place where the the production and the energy is just flawless and energetic, but it's just creating consumers. And then we wonder why things like COVID-19 hit and Christians really struggle. The candy gets taken away and there's no meat. There's no substance. There's no depth. And Christians are, as the word said, are just tossed to and fro by the cares of this world. If you have meager meals of cotton candy all the time, you're just going to be a malnourished follower of Jesus. And, and don't get me wrong, cotton candy ain't bad. We'll throw a little cotton candy on top of the entree, right? We need some dessert. That's good. But we need, we need the meat of God's word more than anything else. That's what does the work in our lives. Man, we long to be a people like, uh, I love what David says in Psalm 19. I, I long, this for me, long for this for me, but also for our church. That we would pray with him like this and, and talk about God's word this way. He says, more to be desired is God's word than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's what we long for. Uh, they receive God's word carefully. It's the next point. So they weren't just hungry um, indiscriminately. They were careful what they ingested. It says they examined the scriptures daily. So the word examine here, it really is used for judicial uh, investigations. They were looking critically to see the evidence, to see it objectively, to get to the bottom of it, of of truth. They were discerning. They weren't gullible. Uh, John Stott says they combine receptivity with critical questioning. I mean, I love that this is here because, friends, this is an invitation not just to believe every truth claim. Just because it's stated to be the Christian view, just because it's said behind a pulpit, just because it's said by someone that has a Bible in their hand. But we, we open up God's word and say, every time we hear a truth claim, what does God's word say about it? And honestly, that's why we do sermons here at RCC the way we do. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, our sermons are not really clever. They're not super fancy. Like, hopefully, we, our hope is not that you should come away with a sermon at RCC and be like, whoa, I could have never gotten there. I could have never figured out that that random connection or that really uh, interesting application. Like, we want you to be able to see it in God's Word as we work through it together. You should be able to see it, right? Because we want you to rely on God's Word, not on us. We're not here to be clever. We just want to show it plainly. And then we want to be a church where you're encouraged to wrestle around together with hard questions, to think carefully, to think critically even, opening up God's Word, discerning what it says. We want conviction of good doctrine, not mindless indoctrination for you. Lastly, fourthly, they receive God's word regularly. It says they examine the scriptures daily. They made it a priority in their busy schedules. Paul's claims had eternal ramifications on their life. So like, man, we gotta go home. We're hearing hearing the sermon on Sunday, Saturday, Jewish um, Sabbath. We are going to study this all night. This is all week. This is important. We're meeting together. We're wrestling around together regularly, even in the busyness of our life. And if you're not a Christian, this is a great invitation for you. These Bereans, they're not Christians yet. They understood the massive implications that, the, that these claims had on their life. And a lot of times when I've, I've met someone that's not a Christian, they'll even agree that, man, if, if Jesus 
Jesus' claims are true. That's a big deal. That would change my life. But then I'll hear them also say, well, I, I'm really busy right now. I have a really big test coming up. Uh, life is just all over the place. Um, I, I think in another season of life, I'll consider the claims of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here, I, I want to warn you against that because there is no more relevant, urgent, pressing thing for you to do than to consider the claims of Jesus. Than to consider that he has said, there is no life apart from me. That outside of the Father, you, outside of me, you can't know the Father. That if you want to have your sins cleansed, you would come to me. That if you want to know everlasting, abundant joy, you would come to me. These are questions, these are the most urgent questions you could deal with. And we would love to walk with you through God's word to actually investigate what they say. Uh, and if that is you, we actually have something for you called Foundations. Uh, it's, a, it's a time where it's a book basically in the bookstore um, over here, but it's not just reading a book. It's going through it with someone to just investigate the basic claims of Christianity together. So we would love to be your partner in, uh, partner in crime doesn't really work there, partner in study, partner in God's word um, to, uh, to go through God's word together and just open the book and see what it says. And if you're a Christian, man, the Bereans, man, they are a good invitation for us, aren't they? Think about this, this, this picture I showed earlier at the welcome. The God that sustains the whole universe has communicated personally with us because he wants you to know him. He wants you to have abundant life in him. He wants you to know his promises. He wants you to experience the power of a life flow with him. He wants you to have hope in him, instructions from him, the flourishing and abundant life in him. And yet, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but a lot of times I think we get more excited about reading Harry Potter than we do about Scripture. Or more excited about screen time than Scripture. And the Bereans show us that, man, how, that we can receive God's Word eagerly, openly, hungry, carefully, regularly, and then look at what happens in verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed. They received God's Word. They believed in Jesus. Their lives were turned upside down. And guys, I, I want to just remind you of the point of what, why we're talking about God's Word. We don't want God's Word just for God's Word. This is not, this is a means to the end. We want to know Christ. We want to know our Savior. We want to love Him and worship Him. And man, if you, if you open your Bible like the Bereans did, I just want to give you like a, a little warning. You got to watch out because like the Bereans did, your world will probably be turned upside down. The more that you open this book, like they did. It's dangerous. I've seen, well, God's turned my world upside down, but I've seen him turn the lives of many of our members upside down over these last few years as a church. I've seen a lot of our members forsake more comfortable places, more comfortable salaries to stay here in the city, to reach people. I've seen a lot of people leave behind a good salary to raise support and be on mission. I've seen a lot of our members risk relationships to share the hope they have in Christ. I've seen some of our members who struggle with same-sex attraction actually believe God's word and live a holy lifestyle. I've seen lots of our members give money away to help one another and help the poor around us, man. Uh, one member recently, I found out, I had to, I had to find this out, one member uh, finds other members, their water bills online. I don't know if you know this, you can actually look up people's water bills and pay them for them. She randomly looks up people's water bills in our church and pays them. That's not normal. It's awesome. I've seen so many stories like this of God turning people's worlds upside down. So guys, I want you to dream with me. What would it look like to see 
our world turned upside down in Baltimore to see people so captivated by a God that died for them that they would give up their lives and their money and their comfort and their time, just give it away to serve other people. That they would give their lives to see people change by the God, by the God of reconciliation and love and they would, they would reach out to people that sound differently, that look differently, that live differently for them and they would reach out to introduce them to the God of reconciliation, to Jesus. That we'd see people enter into the hard work of adopting and fostering because they were so captivated by how God has adopted them into their family. And what would it look like to see your own world turned upside down by God, by his word? To turn from serving money and satisfaction and comfort, to endure the pain of obedience even when temptation persists, to share the gospel truth even when it's costly, even when it hurts. If we want to do that, we need to give our word, give the word like Paul, give God's word like Paul, and we need to receive God's word like these Bereans. And then we just watch as Jesus does the work, the word does the work and turns our world upside down. And let's bathe our lives and let's bathe the city in prayer knowing it's only God that's truly gonna bring change that we truly want and we truly need. Let's pray to that end. Father, I just wanna take time just to thank you that you communicate with us we're just, we're so unworthy for you to express pages and pages and pages of your plan and your delight and your promises and your power, it ultimately revealing Christ to us. We're so unworthy, but we thank you that the word became flesh. We're thankful that we have your written word to guide us, that we can base our lives on the foundation of revelation, ultimately the revealed Christ. God, I pray for our lives in this room. I pray that we would orient all of our lives around Christ, around the fact that we needed a Savior so much that you came to die, but that you did. Orienting around the necessity of your resurrection, but that that resurrection life lives in your people powerfully. God, forsake, I pray that we'd be like David. Man, would we forsake other, would we not see anything else is more valuable than just getting your word? Will we not see screen time or hobbies or uh, anything else is more valuable than just your word that you've given to us? Help us see it as more valuable than any money we could have, any satisfaction we could have in things of this world. Because we wanna know Christ, deepen our thirst and our hunger for Jesus. God, turn our world upside down. Turn the individual lives in this room upside down for your glory and turn this city upside down for your glory in a way that says we can stand back and say only God, only your spirit, only your power. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.